Hey everyone, it's Sarah. And you might have noticed that today's episode is nice and chunky. So I hope you have a good long drive, walk, run, or pile of cleaning to do because I wanted you to hear absolutely everything Kate had to say. She did an amazing job of communicating the tough spot she found herself in when she actually tried to call off her own wedding because she knew something wasn't right and she wasn't successful. Now, if that makes no sense, you have to listen to how she describes the position she was cornered into. If you've ever felt stuck like this, it will be so validating. And if you haven't, and maybe you've had a hard time understanding how someone can find themselves in a situation like this, her explanation should help paint a better picture for you. Sensitive topics shared today include sexual abuse and domestic violence, so please listen with caution. It's time to cue up another life lesson and what it looks like when our gut is screaming at us. My name is Kate. I'm 36 years old and I live just outside of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. I was 27 years old when I met Steve. Most of my 20s, I had spent building my career. I was working in public relations and marketing. I had this great job. I had my own condo, a little one-bedroom place that I loved. And everything was going really well on paper. But it was also a bit of a vulnerable time in my life. I was in transition in a lot of ways. I had just had a little bit of a falling out with a group of friends that I had known for my whole life. And so my social circle was changing and I was reevaluating some of my friendships and trying to decide what kind of people I wanted to be around. I had also been single for a few years and I started to feel like I was ready to just get back into the dating pool, meet new people, see what was out there. And that's what led me to download Tinder, which is the first dating app I ever used, the first and only dating app I ever used at a friend's recommendation. Within a few days, I met Steve. He was one of the first people that I talked to. He was the only person that I met in real life. Um, Within a few days of us talking, he had invited me out for a first date. And from the first day that I met him, he seemed like exactly what I was looking for in a guy. He was attentive. He was warm. He was respectful. He had his own hobbies and these really varied interests. He had a great group of friends that he had known for years. So it just seemed like there was a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things to get to know about him. And he was a very comfortable person to be around. He wasn't the funniest guy I'd ever met. He wasn't super outgoing. I wasn't wildly attracted to him, but he was just easy to be with. He kind of gave off teddy bear vibes, like a sensitive lumberjack or something like that. That's very and clear. I, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. He seemed like a good guy. And now when I use that phrase, good guy, I'm like, ooh. But at the time when I was in my 20s and I didn't know better, I was like, oh, he seems like such a good guy. He's so nice and kind of unassuming. And he also made it really clear early on that he wasn't playing games. He was very clear that he was looking for a relationship. He was looking for a partner. He wasn't looking to date around. He didn't seem like a player type. He was just very upfront about the fact that he was looking for a relationship. And really quickly, he was expressing that he felt like we would be a good fit. And so we went on a few dates and then I went on a business trip for a week. And I remember that while I was away, he was texting me all the time and starting to say things like he missed me and he couldn't wait to see me when I got back. And after I came back from that trip, I think we had a handful of dates, but really, really quickly 
he was expressing that he felt very strongly about me. He seemed like he was just totally smitten and he wasn't afraid to show it. I think he even said within a few weeks of us meeting each other, he was already saying, you know, I think I'm falling in love with you. I think I want to be with you. You're exactly what I've been looking for. And I remember at the time feeling a little bit overwhelmed by that. And it felt like it was moving really fast. And there were even times when I felt a little bit smothered by the attention that he was giving me, but I was also trying to keep an open mind. And I felt like he seemed like such a great guy and there weren't any red flags at that time. So I didn't want to jeopardize a relationship with someone who could potentially be a great guy by holding myself back. So I remember making a conscious effort to say, just go with it. You know, sometimes this is what happens. You meet people and you hit it off and there are love stories that start that way. So why question it? Just give into it. And it moved really, really quickly after we met. I think he wanted to introduce me to all of his friends right away. He wanted to introduce me to his family. We were spending all kinds of time together. He wanted to be together multiple nights a week lived in different towns. I was living by myself and he was living with his parents in a town about 40 minutes away, but he would drive out after work and he would be waiting for me at my apartment building after I got home from work. And he would say, you know, I'm just looking forward to seeing you tonight and you take your time, you come home and relax and get ready. And I'll just be waiting for you. And at the time I remember feeling like, Ooh, I can't even have a few minutes to myself when I get home. I, I have to worry about the fact that he's just sitting there but he made it seem like I'm just so eager to spend time with you. And he really was pushing for us to be together a lot. And I think that made the relationship move much more quickly than it might have otherwise, because he seemed to have just endless time and he wanted to spend it with me. Within eight months, we moved in together. And when we first started dating, he was living with his parents, but he had expressed to me that he was looking to buy his first house. And he was looking for a house in a town not too far from where I lived, but it was a town that I wasn't really that interested in living in. And he would take me on showings with his real estate agent or to open houses. And he would make comments about how he was going to buy this house for the two of us. And then I would move in, you know, when my lease was up and when I was ready, I could come and live with him. And I remember feeling really uncomfortable about that for a few reasons. One was because I didn't want to live where he wanted to live. He's kind of a country kid. He grew up in the country, really. And I've always lived in cities or in bigger towns. And so I, I felt more comfortable there. But also, I really was uncomfortable with the idea that he would buy something and own it. And then I would come and live with him. And I wondered, would I pay him rent? Like, what would that look like? And I was a really financially independent person. I always have been. So I didn't feel right about that, that he would own a place and I would live with him. But we were talking about living together. We had gotten quite serious and we had met each other's families. He had come on vacation with me and my family. We were spending all this time together anyway. So when my lease came up about eight months after we met, I asked him if we could live together for a year in a rental, just so that we could see if we liked living together. And I remember kind of calling it an insurance policy for our relationship. I said, this is just a good chance for us to get together and see if it works before we make this enormous financial commitment to buy a place together. So that's what we did. We rented a place and moved in together. And for the most part, everything was still really good. But living together, of course, there are challenges. And I was also starting to see some behaviors and some characteristics with him that were worrisome to me. 
I realized that Steve is a person who does not take accountability for his actions. If he makes a mistake, he always blames it on someone else. If he does or says something that's kind of mean and you call him out on it, he'll deny it. He'll shut down. He just can't really take accountability for his actions at all. And I started to see that not in huge arguments right away, but I could see little threads of that happening just in our day-to-day life. He seemed to also have a bit of a, like a victim mentality. He would run into problems at work or he would have challenges with friends and it was never his fault. It was always somebody else's fault. And I started to see that behavior come out. I also met his family and that was a really interesting experience because I grew up in a family with two parents who love each other very much. I have an older brother. We're very close. We're not a perfect family, but we're very close. We're supportive of each other. We like spending time together. And Steve comes from a family where he's an only child. He has two parents who don't have the healthiest relationship and who are not individually very healthy people mentally or physically. And it became really clear to me very early on that he had a really dysfunctional childhood and a very, in a lot of ways, unhappy upbringing. And that's one of the things that drew me to him because I felt protective of him in some ways. I would see these behaviors come out in him and I would think, well, but he had such a hard childhood and he has this weird family background. And of course, he's a little bit a little bit different and he doesn't have all the skills that people in healthy families have. So in some ways, that was something that I felt badly for and I felt protective of him. And I also made a lot of excuses for him when I saw how dysfunctional his family was. And even when I met them, his parents were from the outset, they were pretty welcoming to me, but they just have some very unhealthy dynamics in their family that made me pretty uncomfortable. His mom, I now know, is a pretty emotionally unwell person and she could be quite harsh on people, you know, verbally and just not a very comfortable environment to be with. And so that was a bit jarring for me because we came from such different backgrounds and I have this wonderful family that I love spending time with, but he had a family where there were all of these issues and he didn't really like being around his parents, but he felt obligated to be with them. And I was often the one pushing and saying like, should we call your parents? Have you checked on them recently? Should we go over there for dinner? Because that's what felt normal to me, but it wasn't normal for him. And I think over time as like after we got married and as time went on, it became really clear how much of an issue that dynamic was. But in the early stages when we were just dating, I kind of felt like, well, this is a little weird, but who am I to judge, you know? Oh, yeah. And you don't necessarily want to hold it against someone because oftentimes or sometimes that doesn't define who someone is necessarily. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of have to invest a little more time to investigate further, I guess. Totally. And I also felt that because his parents weren't very well, he presented himself as being someone who was a caregiver in his family. And I admired that at the beginning. I thought, oh, Here's this man who at the time was 30 years old when I met him and he was still living at home. And he explained it as, you know, I'm living at home because my parents need support and I'm taking care of them. And I thought that was really admirable. I think now that I reflect on it, that wasn't actually the truth of why he was still living at home. And and I think the dynamics between him and his parents are so complex and so unhealthy Mm -hmm. that nothing was what it seemed like when I first met them. 
But at the beginning, it was something that endeared me to him because I really admired that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, again, I thought it fit that kind of good guy persona that he had. We moved in together. We rented together for a year. We were committed to each other despite some of the red flags that were popping up. It was clear that we had decided we were going to be together. And so we lived together for a year. Then we bought a house together. A year after we bought our house, he proposed. A year after he proposed, we got married. A year after we got married, I got pregnant. So things just really started to move like dominoes after that. It was kind of like a runaway train in some ways that even though as the relationship progressed, it became more unhealthy. There were more things that I was concerned about. We had become so committed to each other. It had been such an intensely loving relationship to start, but also like a, just a very intense relationship. We were together really, really fast and very ingrained in each other's lives really, really quickly. And so I felt at times like it had kind of gotten away from me. Like I couldn't slow it down. I had committed to him. I had bought a house with him. I had said yes to the proposal. And it just felt like a train that was moving that I couldn't get off. I think there's somewhere in my journal way back is it something like, I feel like this train is going faster than it's a different, it's not my pace, you know, but I'll catch yeah. up, you know, kind of thing. And yeah. I remember saying that I will catch up to how he feels eventually. I know I will. That's amazing to look back on. Unfortunately, we don't realize that until later that that is significant, that we feel yeah. that. But I think that's really important for people to hear, like to pay attention to that feeling. Totally. Especially if it feels, if you can recognize in yourself in the moment that this doesn't feel comfortable to me. I wish that I had tuned into that. I wish that I had given myself more credit and trusted my gut more. But at the time I I was not in that headspace and I was confused. Like one of the things that I noticed as time went on and the cracks began to show and he became more manipulative, I stopped trusting my gut. And I just felt confused all of the time. And so it's very easy when you're feeling that overwhelmed and that confused to listen to someone outside of yourself. And that's where he would come in and say, but we're meant to be together or, but I love you so much or, you know, what we have is so special, we can't lose it. And so it was easy for me when I was feeling confused to put faith in the fact that he felt so sure and he was so steadfast. I was thinking to myself, there must be something wrong with me because he feels sure and I don't. And maybe it will all work out somehow. You're just wrong. Exactly. What did your family think of him? My family, that's a good question. My family really liked him at the beginning. And, you know, he's a respectful guy and he wore his little butt down shirt and he was very friendly and kind and gracious when he was with my family and my family welcomed him with open arms. And so they were very swept up by that too. And I remember my family has a cottage and a few months after we were dating, I brought him up to the cottage for the first time with my parents. We spent a weekend together, just kind of hanging around the lake and going kayaking and going out on the boat and stuff like that. We had a really nice weekend But I remember when we went to leave, I gave my parents a hug and I said, I love you and we'll see you soon. And then he was hugging my parents. And I remember him saying to my parents, like, I love you and we'll see you soon. And I remember hearing him say it to my parents a few months in. 
in my gut, I felt so uncomfortable with it. And I was like, why would you do that? Like you hardly even know them. It feels odd to me. It Mm. felt really strange and it felt uncomfortable. And I couldn't articulate why, because my, my family is gracious. And of course they wouldn't have thought anything of it. But for me, it was hearing him say it to someone else like that. I was like, you hardly know these people. What are you doing? Something felt instinctively unnatural in that moment. And you knew it. Yes. Yes, totally. And I thought at the time, you know, he has this really dysfunctional family. He doesn't have the best relationship with his parents. My parents have been so welcoming to him. Maybe he's just swept up in that. He had expressed to me over and over again, how grateful he was to be welcomed into my family and to be able to enjoy that relationship that we had. So I, it was, again, one of those times where I was like, I feel bad for you because you don't have this and I do. And who am I to hold you back from that? You know, my parents are willing to welcome you with open arms. Who am I to say that you should slow down or you should express your affection for them a different way? But now I look back and I'm like, well, he was doing the same things to them that he was doing to me. It was that intense love bombing of I'm going to ingratiate myself to you immediately and I'm going to force a close relationship immediately so that you'll let your guard down and let me in. He was manufacturing something. Yes. So my parents really liked him. My family liked him. I have an older brother who doesn't live near us, but when he came home and he met Steve, he liked him and everybody got along well. And over time, I think what ended up happening was even when I was expressing to my parents some of the struggles that I was having in our relationship, they were very quick to defend him and to say, you know, but he's obviously working really hard and he obviously loves you so much. And he obviously doesn't come from the same environment that you do. You can support him and you guys will work through this and he loves you. And that's the, the most important thing. And I think they also saw that in the beginning, he made me really, really, really happy. And so they wanted that to continue and they were thrilled to see me with someone who seemed to love me so much and seemed to care so well for me that they didn't want to lose that. And I think part of them felt like, well, I don't want her to screw it up because he seems like the perfect guy. So what's holding her back? And that's a really jarring thing. Having your family get fully on board with someone. And then when your experience turns negative and they don't understand that, it ended up being a really damaging dynamic, even in my own family. I can only imagine. I'm really sorry to hear that. Was there anybody in that time that validated you or heard you? Um, It's interesting because by the time it all fell apart, when I left our marriage, it was really shocking to a lot of people, to our friends, to my family, even it was shocking to them. They didn't understand it. I had been hiding what was going on what was going on in our relationship so well for such a long time that it took people totally by surprise. And that was that was me intentionally pr- trying to protect him even when I knew things were really really bad in our relationship and when I started to finally realize how dysfunctional it was and how unhealthy it was, I still felt like I had to protect him. And even when the problems that were created in our relationship were problems created by him, I still felt like I had to protect him. And some of that was also self-preservation because I felt embarrassed to admit that I had chosen someone who was capable of doing the things that he eventually did. So it took me a long time to get comfortable saying like, 
no, he's not the person that you think he is. And I was complacent or a part of protecting that. Exactly. And to be rocking the boat would be to admit that you've apparently made a mistake. Absolutely. That everything is not as it seems. It's a lot of risk in that. Well, and we had had instances before where I had tried to express that I was unhappy or that I wasn't sure about what was happening in our relationship or that I didn't feel secure and safe. And because of the circumstances around that and because of my own insecurities and and my family's own shortcomings, because we all have shortcomings, it actually reinforced to me that at the time they were not safe people for me to express that to. Mm. So for example, by the time we were living together and we had bought the house together and we were engaged, we had already fallen into this pattern where Steve was really deceptive and he would hide things. And I knew that he would lie about things and then he would try and cover it up and then it would create this big argument and somehow it would get turned around that I was the bad guy and then I would have to kind of beg for forgiveness. And that pattern had already started. But we fell into a cycle where every few months there would be some big deception, there would be some big lie, there would be some mistake that he had made. And then there would be the fallout from that, which would usually result in me trying to repair the relationship because I had made the terrible error of calling him out on those things. And then we would get back together, we would become closer, he would make all of these promises and commitments to be a better partner and a better husband and all of this stuff. And it was a cycle, just a never ending loop of deception and then repair and then love bombing and then deception and then repair and then love bombing. And I recognized that that pattern was happening, but again, I felt kind of powerless against it. And I also would allow myself to be convinced over and over again, it can't get worse than this. It can only get better. And he would make these huge promises and I would believe them because I wanted so badly for it to be true and for him to actually go back to being the person that he was at the beginning. So we were engaged and we were getting ready for our wedding and we were planning our bachelor and bachelorette parties. I had a dinner with girlfriends for my bachelorette party. It was pretty low key because that's more my style. And he was going to have a big bachelor party with his friends. He had two really close friends that were going to be in his, in our wedding party. And they planned this bachelor party. And something about me is that I'm not very comfortable with this idea of men having these bachelor parties where they go out to strip clubs and they let out all of their single energy. And it's like this last hurrah before they're locked down. And I want to be very careful to say that that's not a judgment call about whether or not strippers should be a thing, whether or not sex work is valid. I believe all those things are, and I don't have an issue inherently with people going to strippers, but I think just the attitude around it of this is my last night of freedom before I'm locked down by my woman. It feels very misogynistic to me. Yeah. That's a belief that I've had for ages. Steve knew that about me from the time that we started dating. He knew this is something that makes me feel uncomfortable. It just feels a little bit kind of sleazy and misogynistic to me. I don't love it. And so when he was planning his bachelor party, I said, I don't care what you do. I hope you have a great night. I hope you go out with your friends. You know, if you end up at the strip club, that's fine. But I do feel uncomfortable with the idea of you 
having, you know, personal lap dances in a private room, that to me feels like a boundary that I'm not comfortable with you crossing. And again, this is something that he had known about me for months. I know that it's not everyone's preference and I fully respect that other people feel differently, but I had expressed that that was something I was uncomfortable with. He very much knew that about me. And throughout most of our relationship, he had been saying, oh, I totally agree. And that's not my thing. And I would never do that. I totally respect you. And I fully agree. And so he had his bachelor party two weeks before our wedding and came home the next morning and we were chatting and he was telling me all about the night and how they ended up at a strip club. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds like a fun night. You know, did anything happen that I should be worried about? And he said, no, I don't think so. Like I got a couple lap dances, but like, it was no big deal. And just the way that he said it after we had talked a number of times about how that would be something that would make me really uncomfortable. It was so jarring to me that he kind of threw in that comment and then seemed absolutely bewildered when I expressed that that wasn't very cool. And it made me kind of upset. It turned into this enormous argument about how at first he denied ever knowing that that was something I would have been uncomfortable with. He was kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. We never even talked about this before the bachelor party. What are you talking about? Which made me feel crazy and a little bit hysterical because I was like, I know I'm not making this up. We talked about this many times. I don't understand why you wouldn't have been honest with me. If that was your intention, you should have been honest. So at least I'm not blindsided. But it really became a huge argument. And it was just kind of the last straw after a number of lies and deceptions that I felt like, what are we doing? You know, we're about to get married and you've made this commitment to me. And now another thing, another commitment that you've made that you're falling through on. Why is that happening? At that point, I had my own therapist that I was seeing just for like general mental health. I had a therapist and she kind of knew some of the challenges that we'd had in our relationship. And I had a session with her right after his bachelor party and right after we had had this huge argument. And we were talking about it and she kind of said to me, you know, do you feel safe with him? And I said to her, well, what do you mean by safe? Can you define safe? And she just went quiet for a minute. And she was like, just think about what you just asked me. Is there any instance that you don't feel safe with him in? Is there any type of safety that you feel is missing in your relationship, whether that's physical safety or emotional safety? Why is it that you have to define it? Don't you think that a few weeks before your wedding, it should be a given? Yes, I feel safe with this person. And that conversation was a little bit like a light bulb. Because I was like, no, I can't say that I trust him. I can't say that I feel safe with him, but I'm committed. Our wedding is paid for. We have, you know, all of our family and friends coming and what can I do about it now? And I actually, after that session, tried to call off the wedding. And I said, I don't, I'm not ready to get married. You know, this is just the last straw in a number of deceptions and broken promises why are we doing this if we don't even have basic trust in our relationship? And so I tried to call the wedding off. I went home to my parents' house. I tried to talk to them about it. Their reaction was kind of like, are you overreacting? Are you making a decision out of emotion that you're later going to regret? Is this really something that you want to throw an entire relationship away over? And don't you think you should sleep on it and see how you feel? And part of that is because they didn't know about the little lies and deceptions that had led up to that point. I had been hiding that very well. 
but also because in my family, I have, I have a reputation of being the emotional one. And so I think my parents are not equipped to deal with emotion that way. They didn't grow up in families that tolerated that. My parents were just not equipped to deal with that. And I think they had this conception about me that I could be emotionally reactive, which I, I could be, you know, I'm an emotional person, but the way that they saw that was Steve has made this little mistake. He's admitted to it. Are you really going to throw everything away because of something as silly as a lap dance? And when you put it in those terms, yeah, it does seem pretty silly. So I tried to call off the wedding and that didn't work. Steve made all kinds of promises. He begged, he literally was on his knees sobbing and talking about how I was going to throw away the best thing we could have ever had. I was going to throw away this entire life we had built together because of something so silly. And now that he knew how upset that would make me, he would never do it again. And this was the worst it could possibly get. It will only get better from here. I'm fully committed to being the perfect partner for you. I mean, he put on the full song and dance. And he also said, you know, I think we should see a counselor together. I think we should get some professional help. I think we should figure this out because I'm fully committed and I want you to be fully committed to you. And so that's when we started seeing a couples counselor two weeks before our wedding as kind of a last ditch effort. And from his perspective, he felt like this is going to be the thing that saves our relationship. From my perspective, I agreed to go along with it because I felt like maybe it would get me some clarity at a time when I felt so unsure of everything. But one of the things that I've learned is that if you go to counseling with someone who is psychologically abusive or emotionally abusive, it is very likely the case that they'll use the counseling dynamic and they'll use what's happening in your counseling sessions to further manipulate you. And that's what ended up happening to us. I remember saying to him in our first few sessions, because we had a few sessions a week for two weeks before our wedding, because we were really trying to figure this out. And I remember saying to him, I will stay with you, but I just don't want to get married. Can we just postpone the wedding? I don't want to get married under these conditions. And he said to me at the time, if you don't marry me now, I know that you're never going to marry me. And so this is kind of an ultimatum, like you marry me now or we walk away entirely. And now when I think about that, and I think about the fact that we had a counselor who was sitting in the room for that conversation, I wonder why she didn't ever say anything about how messed up that is. But she didn't. She kind of agreed, like, let's make this a fresh start and off you go. If you decide to get married, then you're fully committing. And that's the decision that you've made. So she wasn't paying attention to the fact that, I mean, even what he said, like, if you don't marry me now, you're never going to marry me. Then you shouldn't be getting married. Absolutely. If he was saying that before, that was basically him admitting, I've got to lock you down now or you're going to leave me. Well, (laughs) And, and it's, it felt at the time, and I still think it was a threat. It was blackmail. It was, you do this thing that I want you to do, or I throw everything away. We sell the house. You take the financial hit. And my parents had paid for 90% of the wedding and they had paid that money up front. So my parents, my family was standing to lose a tremendous amount of money if we canceled the wedding at that point. But also I felt so embarrassed. I felt humiliated by the idea of canceling the wedding and saying to all of my friends and family, I made a mistake. You were touching on something that 
I really feel the weight of that there had to have been so much pressure in that moment. And it's so easy and logical. You would have had to defeat insane odds to go ahead and go through with calling that off with the the social pressure, the commitments made, the bills paid, you know, everything. Because you were what, a week out at this point? Yeah, I think we were a few days out at this point. It had really come down to the wire. And it was a given, like we would lose all that money for sure. We had people who had traveled from out of town. It was a tremendous amount of pressure. And part of me feels like that might've been why he felt emboldened to do it right before our wedding, because it was a no-win situation for me. I didn't really have the option to be upset or to back out at that point. He definitely had the upper hand. Yeah. Well, and I remember standing on our wedding day, I remember standing, getting ready to walk down the aisle with my dad and he had known everything we had just gone through. And he said to me, any regrets? How do you feel? And I remember saying to him like, no, I feel okay. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I feel good. And knowing in my heart, I don't feel confident in what I'm saying at all. But even for him, for my parents, I felt like I would disappoint them if I backed out then or if I threw away this wonderful man. And so even though I knew and, you know, I know that they want what's best for me. I know that they would have supported me. And that's even more clear now than it was then. But at the time I felt like I can't get out of this and I have to put on the show to protect my family. I have to put on the show to protect him. I have to protect our friends and family from this. I just have to live with this. I just have to suck it up. I've made my bed. I have to lay in it. And off I go. I march down the aisle. I go through with the wedding. I say, yes, I do all of that. Even though I knew I think I knew on our wedding day that we were kind of doomed because I felt so unhappy about what had happened and the position that I felt I had been put in. It didn't feel safe to me. It didn't feel loving to me. I had a lot of resentment towards him because I felt like you put me in this position and you created a circumstance where I had to stand at my wedding and make vows knowing that I didn't fully believe them. And that's something that even now I feel pretty ashamed to admit because I believe in marriage and I believe in the importance of making vows and I believe in the things that they mean. And so I I still have a hard time reconciling how I could allow myself to make that commitment in front of everyone I love when I knew in my heart that it didn't feel right. That still feels kind of shameful for me in some ways, you know? I can see that. I think at the same time, what I'm hearing from listening to you is that you were also keeping you. It's not that you were devaluing the commitment. You value commitment so much that you went through with the commitment of the wedding. Does that make sense? Like you, you had committed to your friends and family that you were going to do this. You had committed your parents' money. So you were following through maybe out of an attempt to keep the peace and sacrificing yourself in the moment. So you traded yourself, your gut for that. I wouldn't hold you making those vows against you. You made a very human and difficult decision in the moment and you chose peace, at least for everyone else. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think there's also 
there was also a selfish part of me about it and a bit of a delusional part of me about it that thought, really, how much worse could this ever get? Maybe this is the turning point. Maybe me having almost called off the wedding will be the wake-up call that he needs to realize that this behavior is unacceptable and that I'm not going to stand for it. And he was sitting telling me all of those things. He was constantly reminding me, I will never do this to you again. I've seen how badly I've hurt you. I'm fully committed to being the perfect husband. I'm even going to counseling. He was putting on such a show about how this was going to be the turning point for us and how it would all be okay. And as long as I went through the wedding, everything would be okay. And so even though I knew in my logical brain that that likely wouldn't happen, again, I allowed myself to be swept up in it because I thought, but if that is what's going to happen, I don't want to lose that. That's right. everything I've be... ever wanted. And if you do end up marrying the version of him that you fell in love with, you could have your dream. So by yeah. saying no, you're risking that you could be wrong and that yeah. maybe things would have been better. Yeah. Well, and the reality is that we were still in that cycle. And so this awful thing happened before the wedding, but then we decided to go through with it and then things got better for a while. And the periods where things were better were always enough to give me the hope that I should hold on a little bit longer. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop and I always knew that it would. But when you're in that kind of cycle and you're dealing with the confusion and you're dealing with the overwhelm and you've lost faith in yourself and your own judgment, I think you just cling to any signal of hope and there would be enough of them that I would keep holding on. And when times were good, they would be really good. And he would be very attentive and he would do all the loving things that you would hope a partner would do. And I would start to feel, okay, I can breathe a little easier. I can let my guard down a little bit. I can start to get comfortable and settle into this because it feels like things are getting better. And then like clockwork, every six months, every three months, there would be something else. Looking back on it now, I don't recognize that person, but I realized that I was in such a deep state of confusion. I had been so manipulated for such a long period of time. I couldn't see clearly. I really couldn't see clearly. And I'm not a stupid person. I think I'm a pretty smart person. Normally I'm pretty good at judging people, but in this instance with him, it was like there was a veil over me and I really just could not see the reality of what was happening. Well, then if you're constantly in a state of cognitive dissonance and you're under that subtle stress or that constant fight or flight, you're not able to make clear decisions. You're just trying to survive. Absolutely. Well, and I think the thing that I know now, now that I've been out of it for a few years, now that I've had lots of great therapy, I can recognize what was happening in our relationship as being a pretty standard pattern of abuse. And it took me almost a year of counseling after I left him to even feel comfortable calling it abuse. That's something that I've had to force myself to get comfortable with. And it's only because I've spoken to, at this point, a few really great counselors, but I've had it reaffirmed for me over and over again. That's abuse. When somebody is making you question your own reality, when they're emotionally blackmailing you, when they're transversing your boundaries and making it seem as though it's no big deal and making you feel like you're crazy for getting upset about it, that's abusive behavior. And now I recognize that. But at the time, 
I didn't see that for what it was. I thought he was just a complicated person who needed help. And if I loved him enough, he would get better. And that is a very dangerous, Mm -hmm. very dangerous position to put yourself in, especially if you're a people pleaser, where you're willing to take on the responsibility of someone else. Yep. It'll suck the life out of you. Yep. Little emotional vampires just taking every little bit of your spirit. Yep. During our relationship, one of the areas that became a bit of an issue for us was our sex life. And that's something that I still feel uncomfortable talking about. I still feel insecure talking about it. But I think it's important, especially when I consider everything that's happened since then. Because during our relationship, very early on, it became clear that we had different sex drives. We had different preferences. But Steve was always very coercive. Now I can use the word coercive as it related to our sex life. He was always pushing for more, more frequency, more intensity than I was comfortable with. And I felt a tremendous amount of insecurity about that. I felt like there was something wrong with me for not feeling comfortable in our sex life. I grew up in today's society where it's reinforced that men have needs and it's normal for them to have needs. And at a certain point, you have to just serve them in that way. And even though I know, I don't actually believe that within the context of our relationship and everything that was going on, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to give him what he wanted. And that became increasingly problematic, increasingly dangerous, increasingly abusive as time went on. Even before our wedding, even before we were engaged, that behavior had already started. But I think because it was an insecurity of mine, it allowed for all of that abuse to continue to happen in private because I wouldn't feel comfortable talking to anyone about it, even a counselor. And he knew that. So he felt, I think, emboldened to keep pushing and keep pressuring and keep coercing. And and he did some things that are really, now I know there were instances of assault in our relationship. If you force someone to have sex when they say that they don't want to, that's assault, even if it's in a marriage. If your partner is crying and you ignore it, that's assault, you know? Um, If you're keeping lists of every time that you have sex and every time your partner says no and denies you and you're using that list to blackmail them, that's coercive and abusive behavior. But at the time, I just felt so embarrassed. I felt so ashamed. I felt inadequate in a lot of ways. And so I would just force myself to try and feel comfortable and to try and feel like this is just the reality of a married life. And this is the reality when you have a different sex drive than your partner does. And these are the sacrifices that you have to make. And I remember feeling physically ill, knowing I'm going to have to have sex with him and I'm not going to feel comfortable and I'm going to feel used and I'm going to feel violated but I just have to do it. And so that became a big concern in our relationship. And as his behavior became more secretive and as it was clear that he was lying about things, I started to wonder if there were things like affairs going on because I knew that he was not satisfied with our sex life. He expressed it all the time. And I felt like at a certain point, he's going to get fed up and he's going to look for it elsewhere. But he kept assuring me that would never happen. I'm here with you. I'm committed to you. I mean, we talked about it in very explicit terms. We talked about what it would mean for me if I found out that he was cheating on me. He knew that that would be a deal breaker for me. 
he also knew that I felt ashamed and conflicted about our own sex life and that I was struggling with it. And he was always saying, I support you. You know, I just love you. I'm not going to look for it anywhere else. He was saying all the right things while at the same time being incredibly sexually abusive. But then after, after I left, you know, I found out the reality, which is that he had been cheating the entire time and he is a self-proclaimed sex and porn addict. And there were tens of thousands of dollars spent on escorts during our marriage that I had no idea about. There was sexually risk-taking behavior that put my health at risk that I had no idea about. But none of that came to light until after I had already left. Do you think it would have come out if you hadn't left? No, I don't think I ever would have found out. He didn't tell me. I only found out because I left and because of the process of separating and going through a divorce, you have to disclose financial things that maybe you didn't have to disclose during your marriage. And that's the way that everything started to unravel. By the time I finally made the decision to leave, I was leaving because I was so uncomfortable with our relationship, with our dynamic. I recognized it was unhealthy. I recognized I needed to leave, but I didn't know about any of that. And then when I left... The first thing that happened was we started talking about the separation. We started talking about the financial issues. And he said, well, there's debt that you're going to have to take on too. And I said, what do you mean? What debt? What are you talking about? I am a very financially responsible person. He is also a chartered accountant. So presumably he's a financially responsible person. And I knew in our marriage that he spent money more recklessly than I did. But for him to say, oh, there's this debt that I had no clue about was shocking. And so that was the first inkling that there was stuff going on that I didn't know about. And so I said, well, I'm not taking responsibility for a debt that I didn't know anything about. How much debt is there and where did it come from? And how did that happen? And over the period of a few months, it was like a drip feed for a while. I would uncover something new. I would uncover something new. He would admit to something new. And really what happened is that all of the lies that he had been living with since we first started dating started to unravel. So first it was, there was debt. When I did a little bit of research into where that money had gone, I found e-transfers to encrypted email addresses, but with like some very basic internet sleuthing found that they were connected to escorts. So then it was, it was confirmation. Okay. He's been hiring sex workers. What is the extent of that? How long has that been going on? And I went a little bit crazy. Like I did some stuff I'm really not proud of. I looked in his emails and you found answers. That, yeah. Well, and he was still lying and he was still covering up and, you know, I would find something out and he would admit to it, but then there would be 10 other things that he didn't. And I would have to just chip away at it, you know, for yeah, months at it- a time. You, you know, a confession is not a full confession. You never know how much more is there. He might just be trying to appease you because you found something. Exactly. Having that happen during the process of the separation, there are big financial stakes. Having me uncover that you've spent tens of thousands of dollars on escorts at a time when we're reconciling our finances is, is really damaging potentially. And so I think he was in like damage control mode and he was just trying not to let it get totally away from him. But I found out enough that it became pretty clear. This behavior had been going on way before he and I even met. I mean, he, I think the sex addiction, and I'm only calling it that because that's what he called it at the time, 
I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose him. But the sex addiction had been going on since his early 20s. It had been happening for years. It had been escalating for years. It seemed like the behavior had become more intense, more risk-taking over time, more habitual and um, compulsive over time. Mm. There was obviously a tremendous amount of money that had been gone that I didn't know about. And then I also started to call into question everything else, because if you're capable of holding that lie, what else have you been lying about? And I, of course, it's like dominoes, you know, one falls and then all of these other things trickle after it. And it, it became really clear. He had been living basically a double life since I met him and he had lied about pretty much everything. Former relationships, even silly things. Like before we met, I knew that he had been a smoker early in his twenties. He had talked about the fact that he was a smoker, but he was like, oh yeah, I quit years ago. And it turns out he actually quit smoking when he met me because he knew that I wouldn't date a smoker. So he literally stopped after our first few dates, but he told me at the time, oh no, I haven't smoked in years and years. And even his past relationships, he told me he had been single for a while when we met, but as it turned out, he had broken up with his previous girlfriend like a week before we met. And he had been a bit of a serial monogamous where he just went from long-term relationship to long-term relationship for years. He's just a very deceitful person. I don't know if he believes the lies. I don't think he does, but he's very adept at hiding those things and creating a facade. You were together for how many years? We were together for about seven years in total. That's a long time to be living a double life. I was going to say, guy must have been tired. Think of the energy it takes to maintain that level of deception. It's insane. To keep the threads separate and consistent when he needs to. That's why I mean, like he was tired, not just because he was physically busy elsewhere, but mentally to maintain that for so long. And for you to not know, you're obviously an observant person. You're not blind and you're very present and aware. So for him to manage all of that, he had to have been very good at what he did. Well, and to be honest, there were times when I questioned whether that stuff was happening and Mm. I raised it with him and I asked those questions specifically, but he is such an effective liar. I've never met anyone who lies with as much ease as he does. And so anytime I raised a concern or I raised a suspicion, it very quickly was squashed and it very quickly became an issue of you know, you're so suspicious and you don't trust me and and you're crazy. And I think maybe this is your anxiety talking and maybe you should get help for that because your anxiety is creating problems in our relationship and I'm not doing anything wrong. And look at the mess you're making because you're making up these stories in your head. And I remember sitting in counseling sessions with our couples counselor where she would say, is this the voice of your anxiety talking? And feeling like, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm crazy. I think these are valid reasons for feeling unsure. I think that he's given me enough reason to feel unsure, but he felt so steadfast in the fact that he was not doing anything wrong. And how dare I suggest that? And he even convinced our counselor that I was making this stuff up. So in some ways it was really validating to find all of that out because I was like, yes, I'm not crazy. It was happening all along. I knew it. Yep. 
that's what my first thought was. Well, no, it wasn't your anxiety. So it's a good, as painful as it is. That's why I think people go on crazy quests for the truth. Yeah. It's not a matter of outing someone. It's just, you need to know what was your reality because obviously the reality that you were living in wasn't correct. It's a twisted part of the healing process sometimes to know everything, even if it's painful. Yeah. Well, and I think realistically, I know now I will never know everything. I think because of the way that everything has happened, I know some, I have suspicions about things, but I will never know the full truth. And I think it's, I think he's been very adept for many years at hiding the truth of who he is. And he fools everybody. I mean, none of his friends knew that this type of stuff was happening. His family didn't know. My family didn't know. Nobody knows the real him. So the incident that happened with the bachelor party in the few days after that, when I was like, I'm calling off the wedding, we're separating his best man is his best friend, Brian, who is a wonderful human being and who I love very much. Brian came over to our house one night to talk to me to see if he could help the situation. And we were talking and I was saying, I don't understand how Steve could be deceitful like this. I don't understand how he doesn't realize that he's done something wrong. I don't understand what's happening. And I remember Brian saying to me at the time, you know, I've been his best friend since we were kids and I don't know him that well. You know, he lives a pretty private life. He holds his cards close to his best. He doesn't like conflict. I think that's just his way. You know, he, he holds all of this stuff inside. Even I, his best friend of many years, don't know. At the time, I remember thinking that was a bit, a bit nuts. But now when I look back on it, I'm like, well, yeah, he's been living a double life and nobody knows him. And all of his relationships are touched by that in some way, even his best friend. It would have to be. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. He has to, he has to keep people out to a certain degree. Yep. You were saying that you were already in the process of separating when you found out everything. What sparked your decision to decide, okay, I'm done. It's interesting because it was kind of a gradual thing. I think over time, I started to realize how unbearable it was to be in in that relationship and to be struggling with that level of manipulation every day. And just the, the amount of lying and the amount of emotional manipulation that was happening had become really tiring. But I think the catalyst that kind of changed things and set us on the path to separating was probably when we had our son, I had a really, really difficult pregnancy, really difficult pregnancy. We had complications at the end. I had to be induced early. I had a very awful labor and delivery and going through that process of having a really difficult pregnancy and having this traumatic birth experience, it became very clear to me that I didn't have a supportive partner in him. He just didn't really seem to care. He wasn't very sympathetic he kind of couldn't be bothered to help out in some ways. Like even during the pregnancy, I felt like, I feel like he should care a little bit more about the fact that I'm so sick and I'm having such a hard time. And he just seemed kind of checked out. And then the labor and delivery was so brutal and he couldn't support me because he was complaining about how the hospital bed that he had to sleep in was uncomfortable and everything seemed like a burden on him, despite the fact that I was having a really difficult time and trying to manage all of that. 
And then we have our beautiful son, Danny. He's the most wonderful thing in the world. And Steve was kind of checked out as a parent right from day one. He, when people were watching, when friends came over or family came over or when we were out in public, he very much wanted to be the doting dad. And he would make sure that people could see him carrying our baby or in changing diapers. And he would do all those things when people were watching. But it was such a stark contrast to what it was like when we were just at home as this new family of three trying to figure it out. I mean, I was the one who was getting up all night. I was breastfeeding. I was doing all the care in the house. I was taking care of our dog. I was doing all the research. I was suffering through the postpartum phase and I had a difficult time with that. Breastfeeding was really, really difficult. I had a horrible time with that, but I didn't feel like I had his support as a partner and he just didn't seem to be that invested unless people were watching. And then when our son was three and a half months old, we had a health scare. Even from the time he was born, I could tell that there was something wrong. His stomach made these weird noises. He seemed to have some funny breathing patterns. And I took him to the doctor multiple times to have it looked at. And the doctors that I saw at first were like, you're just a new mom. Babies are just like this. Babies make funny noises. You don't have to worry about it. You're imagining things. I felt like there was something that was wrong, but I was convinced otherwise. And then when our son was three and a half months old, we were seeing a new pediatrician. She noticed that his breathing was weird. And she said to me, I think I'd like you to get it checked out. And I was like, okay, finally, someone's paying attention. And she ordered a chest x-ray for him. And we found out that he had something called a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which is a hole in the diaphragm that develops in utero. And it's usually caught on your anatomy scan when you're pregnant, but somehow it had been missed. So he had this congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which meant that all of the organs that are supposed to be in your stomach were up in his chest and his lungs and his heart hadn't developed normally because they were all squished with his other organs and he was having trouble breathing. And it's a life-threatening condition. I mean, I remember the pediatrician saying to me when she found the results of the x-ray, she called me at five in the morning and left a voicemail because I was sleeping. But when I woke up, I listened to the voicemail and she said, I don't want you to panic but I've just seen Danny's x-ray. You need to get to the children's hospital right away. He needs surgery today. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want you to Google it on the way to the hospital because you'll just upset yourself. Call me when you're awake. And when I called her, she said to me, you know, how long is it going to take you to get to the hospital? And I said, you know, I just have to get dressed and have a shower. We can be there in an hour. And she said, I'll meet you there in 45 minutes. And we rushed to the hospital He had surgery that day. There was a surgeon waiting for him. But even during that experience, he was in the pediatric ICU for a week. I was sleeping at his bedside and I just was beside myself. I was 100% focused on how to support our son through this. And Steve was there, but he was totally checked out. He didn't ask the doctors any questions. He didn't seem to care about what was happening. He was just sitting playing on his phone all the time. Mm. Even our son was in the hospital bed and he was attached to all these wires and things. And so we couldn't pick him up on our own. We had to wait for a nurse to come and help us get situated if we wanted to hold him. And I was trying to hold him every chance that I could get, even though he wasn't awake. You know, I just, I felt like that was the only thing that we could do as his parents was to support him and to be there. And I, Steve was like, no, I don't really need to hold him. It's fine. He can be in the bed. He just was not 
invested. He didn't seem like he was there. And then it turned out after the first night or two, one of the nurses got us a room at the Ronald McDonald house nearby so that he could stay at the Ronald McDonald house because only one of us was allowed to sleep in Danny's room. So I slept in his room. Steve went to the Ronald McDonald house. On the last day we were in the hospital, I was looking through his phone for something. He had given me his phone because I was trying to look something up. And I saw that he had been searching escorts in the town where the hospital is. And even then I was like, I'm not even going to bring this up. He's just going to say it's nothing. It's probably nothing. It's not worth talking about. But now I look back on it and I realize I was sleeping at our son's bedside and I shouldn't even say sleeping. I was awake for a week at our son's bedside and you were at the Ronald McDonald house looking for hookers. Like, how does that happen? So I think between the pregnancy, the birth, and then that, I really started to lose faith in him. I, I started to lose respect for him. I couldn't find things in him that I admired because I had such high hopes for him as a dad and he was falling so short and he had checked out of our life together. Like he wasn't doing household stuff. I was doing all the household stuff. I felt like I was doing 99% of the parenting. And to my own detriment, we came home from the hospital and Danny didn't sleep for more than 45 minutes at a time for weeks after his surgery, which apparently can sometimes happen when babies have anesthesia. But I had already been awake the whole time that we were at the hospital with him. And then we came home and Steve went and slept in the other room because heaven forbid he should be woken up at night. You know, he had to go to work. And so I was doing all of that myself and it was just an incredibly heavy burden. And I realized that I couldn't get his help. And then the day I actually decided to leave was the day of Danny's first birthday party. And now that I look back on it, it's such a ridiculous thing that set me off. We had this little birthday party with our families. We had planned it for a while. The only thing that I asked Steve to do was to make sure that we had propane for the barbecue so that he could cook, he could barbecue for the party. And in typical Steve fashion, when I first asked him about it, he was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'll do it. And then I kind of reminded him about it a few days later. And he was like, why are you nagging me? Of course I'm going to do it. And you always pick on me and you know, I'm doing everything I can for this family and you have to leave me alone. And it became this whole thing. And then sure enough, the day of the party, he goes to turn the barbecue on. There's no propane. And he had told me, yes, I went, I took care of it and I filled it up. And I just, it was this thing where it all came into focus where I was like, I can't even count on him to do this one thing. And not only that, but I'm going to have to go through the whole emotional cycle every time where he blames me for being a nag and he accuses me of being a bad wife. And then he'll sulk for days afterward to punish me. It just became crystal clear on that one instance. I was like, this is what our life is going to be like forever. And I don't want to deal with this forever. And I, I decided to leave. I said, that's enough. I can't do it anymore. I don't want Danny to grow up in a house where his parents are so clearly unhappy mm-hmm. and unable to work together. And I'm, I remember saying to him, I want to leave now before I actually hate you because we're going to have to raise a child together. And if we can salvage some level of friendship, I think we need to do that now. And we need to focus on being friends so that we can raise this child together. And then that all went to shit when I found out <laughs> about the double life. But that was the thing. It was a a silly thing, an empty propane tank. And I was like, that's it. 
I can't it do was this your moment anymore. of clarity. Yep. It was that straw. Yep. Sometimes we kind of have to see the pattern enough times to realize it's a pattern. Yeah. That it's not gonna, even if it does come back up, it's so familiar now that you know the down is coming. It's not just yeah. gonna stop happening. So what well, and has, we're not gonna learn from our mistakes and this is gonna keep whatever promises he makes, it's not gonna make a difference. It's still yeah. gonna be the same story every time. And one thing that my therapist has said that really resonates with me is that relationships like this, especially this kind of like insidious under the radar abuse and manipulation, it's death by a thousand cuts. And that's totally what it was. It wasn't one big argument. It wasn't one big instance. It was just a series of deceptions, a series of betrayals, a thousand little cuts that one day I woke up and I was like, this is too much. What does your healing process look like? I Obviously you've been in therapy and yeah. I, I like to ask people what an aha moment was that they've had, or what is something significant that a therapist or someone has said that was like a marked moment in your healing you mentioned, you know, the death by a thousand cuts, that's very affirming, but what has your healing process looked like? What have been the little things along the way that have helped? I think there have been a few things. One major, major thing for sure is therapy. And I've had two counselors that I've seen since I left Steve. The first one was great. And she's the one who started to plant the seeds about you know, what you went through is not normal. And it's, it's really not normal to live with someone for seven years and never really know who they are. And there is a level of kind of pathological deception that would make that possible. So she was the first one who started to plant those seeds. And then she ended up going on maternity leave and I found another counselor and it's the counselor that I still see today. I've been seeing her now for more than three years, not consistently, but we check in with each other every now and then. But I think the biggest thing for me has been connecting with a counselor who really gets me. I think for a lot of people, if they're looking at therapy, they'll hear the advice, like you have to find someone that you click with. And I have found the counselor that I click with. She gets me. She doesn't mind if I swear. She speaks in analogies that really just make sense to me. And she has personal lived experience. Unfortunately, she had a similar experience in her first marriage. And she has been able to connect a lot of dots for me because our experiences were personally very similar. But then of course she has the like psychological and scientific knowledge to be able to make sense of that for me. And so that has been tremendously helpful. I think the other thing that's been a big piece of it is getting myself out of our isolated friend and family group because one of the absolute hardest things about leaving him was that really nobody believes me still to this day. I've told a few people details about what have happened. Like a few of my closest girlfriends, girls that I met through him. Some of them are people that he went to high school with, but they became my close girlfriends during our relationship. Some of them I've told most of the details or a lot of the details. And I know that they believe me. But by and large, our broad circle of friends, I think they just don't know what to believe. They know for sure that he was cheating on me throughout our entire marriage. They know for sure that he was spending money in secret, but I think they just have such a hard time reconciling that with who they think he is. Hmm. And so their safety mechanism, or at least what I think is their safety mechanism is to say like, 
this sounds really messy. I'm not going to choose a side. I'm just going to stay neutral, which is the most hurtful thing you can possibly do. I don't blame them for doing it. I know that they're good people. I know that they can't operate on information that they don't have or they, that they don't understand, but it is devastating to go through what I went through with him and then to have people be like, but he seems like such a nice guy. It's devastating. It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. I think that's another form of cognitive dissonance. I think, you know, a lot of time your friends and family can't reconcile what they see with what they're hearing. Cause oftentimes we're going to validate our experience over what someone else is saying, even if they respect you and love you and believe you. Yeah. Sometimes our belief and our experience just don't mesh and we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. I think part of it is that I have to, I have to come to terms with the fact that I can love some of those people from a distance, but for, for my own safety, I have to have a separation there. And that's a very sad thing. And I respect and love a lot of those people that I've had to let go of. And I remember struggling with that for the first year or two after I left him, I had this conversation with my counselor constantly where she would say, you know, eventually it might come to the point that you have to just let those friendships go. And I would say, no, I think I can hold on to them. And I I don't want to make people choose sides and I'm just going to find a way to tiptoe through it. But really what I've discovered is that having people in common who decide to stay neutral allows for there to be a connection between the two of us that is very unhealthy. It allows for information to be passed Mm. between us where, you know, someone might say something to him about me that they think is totally innocuous because they don't realize how he will manipulate that and turn that against me and use it against me in a court case, for example. So I have to, as a protective measure, bring the walls a lot closer to myself. And that's been a struggle in a lot of ways. And I try not to get angry about it. But the other thing that I recognize is that People don't understand what domestic violence, family violence, domestic abuse, people don't understand what it actually looks like. And I 100% was one of the people who did not understand what it looked like until I experienced it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if I'm ever in an abusive relationship, for one thing, I'll know. And second of all, I will be strong enough to stop it and I'll be strong enough to walk away. And going through this experience has been so eye-opening because I didn't recognize it and I wasn't strong enough. And, or maybe it's not fair to say that I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't equipped or I was so ingrained in it that it took me years to get myself out of it. Sometimes people will say, you know, it's such a heroic thing or it's such a brave thing leaving an abusive relationship. It doesn't feel that way at all. It feels like dragging yourself out of a burning house on your hands and knees. It does not feel heroic. It feels traumatic. It feels confusing. It feels draining. But people, if you've never experienced it, you don't know that. Oddly enough, I think you were the first person that I have talked to that has said that and put it that way because I have said the same thing and people are like, oh, you're so brave to, oh, you're so strong. And I'm like, No, it didn't feel brave. It didn't feel strong. It felt like survival and it was shitty and it was messy. And I didn't feel like I had a choice. It was just more like I put one foot in front of the other and I'm falling to pieces, but it's just all you can do because the alternative is to what, you know, like it's, it's not, 
it didn't feel brave. It didn't feel strong. It didn't feel like, yeah, I'm not putting up with this. It was just like, I'm a blob on the floor. What do I do next? Yeah. I think maybe people discount themselves because they're not feeling strong or brave. It doesn't mean you can't do strong and brave things. Well, and maybe we need to change the definitions because when I hear you talk about it and it's outside of myself, I can recognize that even when you feel like a blob and even when you're just putting one step ahead of the other, that is what bravery is. That is what courage is. That is what strength is. But I think Mm -hmm. we associate those concepts with that like, yeah, I'm reclaiming my dignity and I'm, you know, I'm going to stick it to the man. And that's not what bravery looks like all the time. No. And bravery doesn't mean there's no fear present. I think a lot of we associate bravery with that person, that person that's doing a brave act is not afraid. Yeah. Those two can coexist. It just means you're making a choice despite fear or despite fallout. Yeah. No, anyway, I, I appreciate the way you put that. And that is that it didn't feel brave. It felt like you were crawling out of a burning house just on your hands and knees. Yeah. That's a very powerful picture because that is exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Well, and again, I think when people think of domestic violence and the damage that can be done in that way, they think of physical violence. They think of bruises. They think of police reports. They think of somebody ending up in the hospital. They think of the most intense and the most visual version of that. But I think most, what I've learned is that most domestic violence doesn't look like that, at least not at the start. And it can be just as intense and just as damaging and never leave a mark. And Steve is a person who very rarely raises his voice. He never hit me, but the damage that he has done to my psyche, the damage that he's done to me financially, emotionally, psychologically is so intense and is so present and is so real and valid. And it's only been through going to therapy and having people reaffirm that for me and having people mirror it back to me that I can comfortably say that now. But again, if you've never experienced that, when I think about our friends and family who really wrestle with, do I choose a side? Do I stand up for someone? I think in theory, they're against domestic violence. But when they're faced with the reality of, but maybe it's someone I know, maybe it's someone I even like, maybe it's not clear cut. Maybe I won't always see the signs. I think that's too much for a lot of people to handle. And so they just shut down Mm -hmm. and ignorance is bliss in that way. Hopefully none of them ever experienced that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the reason a lot of people don't think like you were saying, you didn't think it would ever happen to you. And if the person that is perpetrating it is making you think that you're the one or that you are the crazy one, you're not going to think, oh, I'm in an abusive situation. You're going to think, oh, something's wrong with me or, oh, he just did this, but relationships have issues. Yeah. You know, so how big is the issue going to get before we decide, wait, this isn't a normal issue. And then how many times does something need to happen before you realize, oh, wait, this isn't a normal pattern. Yeah. You know, in a situation like mine, where there's like a full double life happening, the reality sounds so absurd that the lies are much easier to believe. And I've said that a million times with my current lawyer in the situation that we're in, in a family court case, he's far more convincing when he's lying than I am when I'm telling the truth, because the truth is absurd. And that's a really hard thing to battle against. 
And what people don't know, especially when you're now in the legal system and not everyone understands the dynamic of how these people function and how they manipulate and how they lie. Thank goodness you found a counselor that has, I mean, a lot of counselors can have clinical skills and, and head knowledge, but if they haven't been duped by someone like this, it's really difficult to understand. Would you say you have gained anything? I mean, besides like your eyes being opened and seeing what domestic violence can look like. And maybe besides your beautiful son, are there any (laughs) positives that you think you're walking away with anything you've gained from this that you wouldn't take back? Yeah, I think so. I think I have to take the good from it that I can, right? I will never regret it because I have Danny and that's Mm -hmm. the most important thing. And if I had to do it all over again to have him, I would. But I think, I think it's benefited me in ways that I didn't expect. I think I've come to know myself better. I've realized that part of the reason I was susceptible to a person like Steve is because I was not a person who was comfortable setting boundaries. I was a people pleaser. I was always willing to sacrifice my own happiness for someone else's. And I think sometimes we glorify that behavior, but it's not very healthy. And I've learned more about myself and my family. And like I said, I love my family. They're wonderful human beings, but this experience has exposed cracks in our family for me that now that I'm aware of, I can navigate better. I think I've also seen my parents in a new light because while I felt really disappointed with some of the things that happened after I tried to leave and feeling like they weren't supportive of that at first, I've come to understand and appreciate their own experiences and the backgrounds that they come from and how they grew up in families that wouldn't allow for emotional release. And so they weren't able to support me in having emotional release. And that's It's been a big learning experience, but I think in going through that, I now have a better appreciation for myself. I have a better appreciation for my parents. And I feel like I've had to learn to look out for myself and take care of myself better. And that will enable me to be a better person for everyone else. I can actually truly be a better person for the people I love because I've learned how to take care of myself and how to set healthy boundaries and how not to betray myself in service to others. And I'm starting to get comfortable now with the idea that that's a healthy way to be. I think for such a long time, I clung to this idea that I have to be nice. People think of me as being nice and I don't want to lose that. And it is important to be nice. And I think I'm a kind person at heart, but I also am finding strength in learning how to stand up for myself and learning how to speak my truth in a way that feels much more honest now. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And I think that will also benefit our son. Like I think about the fact that Danny's going to grow up with Steve as his dad and what that will likely do to him in the long term. And right now he's so young. He loves his dad. He gets candy and toys and they do all the fun things and he benefits from that. But there will come a day when he starts to see the realities of who Steve is and the way he operates in the world. And that will definitely impact Danny. And so I'm, I feel better now that I'm better equipped to support him through that. And the lessons that I've learned, hopefully he won't have to learn the hard way. Hopefully I can be 
a consistent, calming, supportive force for him and help him build the strength that he'll need in his life. He's going to get an education young. Your kids are smart and they're incredibly resilient. I like to look on the bright side of that because I've had other people tell me this too. And I've had moms reach out to me that ended up separating when their kids were young and they had two or three kids and the kids have grown up incredibly aware and strong and the healthy replacements come as they need to. You know, he has so much resource through you having done the work and continuing to do the work. The people that need to come into his life and fill those gaps and show him what healthy dynamics look like will come. And mm-hmm. he'll be so much more equipped as he grows up than someone that someone maybe like us that didn't yeah. know that not everyone has your best interests at heart. When I think about Steve himself and the dynamic in his parents' relationship and how damaged of a human being he is. Yeah. And some of that comes from his upbringing. And in some ways, thank goodness I left because we could have turned out like his parents. We could have turned out this unhealthy, toxic, abusive dynamic. And then we would be raising a child who would live and grow in that environment. And I saw how it turned out for Steve and I don't ever want that for Danny. And so I keep hearing, my therapist keeps saying, my lawyer keeps saying, everyone that I talk to keeps saying, having one safe, stable parent is usually enough. And it's a protective factor that keeps a child safe from the full impact of living with someone who is like that. I've heard the same. I've heard too that later on, like that example of you choosing to break that and choose something different for you and for him will have a major impact too. A lot of people have said, oh, we stuck through it for the kids. And later the kids would say, I wish they didn't. You took him out of that toxic environment. Yeah. Well, and he won't remember it. You know, he won't remember what it was like when we lived in that house. He won't have ever grown up seeing that dynamic play out day to day. Although I will say, and this is just a little rant against the family court system, and it's probably different here in Ontario than it is in different different places around the world, but I think it's common with this system in the US and the system in Canada, at least. The family court system is as broken as it gets. It is not equipped to deal with issues like these. And abusers are able to continue that abuse with the support of the system. And so even now, I'm having all of these conversations about, well, can a person who abused their partner still be a good parent? And I'm going to say something controversial. I don't believe that they can. And I say that knowing that when Danny is with Steve, he has fun. Most of his basic needs are taken care of most of the time. There have been some instances that are pretty alarming, but no life-threatening situations. But I cannot believe that living with someone who is capable of the level of abuse that he inflicted on me will ever be safe for a child. I just don't, I don't believe it. And so, yes, it's protective that we no longer live together and that we've separated and that I've tried to break that cycle, but we're living within a system that will reinforce that abusive dynamic at every turn. And I will be handcuffed to that man for the rest of my life. There is nothing I can do to get out of that. And there is no reprieve from the family court system. He can bankrupt me as he is trying to do right now. He can 
use our child as a weapon. He can use the courts as a weapon. And all of those things are things that he's doing. And it happens to thousands and thousands of people every day. And so that's another thing that I've learned about myself. I've always been a person who has an idea of what social justice means and feels very strongly about social justice issues. And I had no idea how messed up the family court system is until I was in it. But man, until people start to understand what abuse actually looks like and what the implications of it actually are, we're putting so many people at risk. I'm a protective parent and I'm willing to commit myself to doing whatever I can to protect Danny in that way. Not that I want to keep him from Steve because I don't, and I've never done that, but because I need to put his best interest first. And I know that the court system won't. So someone has to, yeah. Well, that's why I'm glad to see that these conversations are becoming so much more prevalent now. The documentaries, the movies, the shows, the songs coming out, the books coming out, the podcasts coming out, stories like yours specifically that also specifically mention this. It's going to take time. But I think very, very slowly that ship eventually will have to turn because people can't avoid the topic now, Mm -hmm. at least not for much longer. It's becoming so much more exposed. And even if it is trending, fine. (laughs) Yeah. I know it's it's out there for entertainment purposes a lot of the time because it's the shock factor. But if it's getting it out there, if it's making people aware of it, fine. I hope it does the good that it needs to do. And I'm really glad that you chose to share all that and go into that detail with me because I do feel that this is something that needs to be talked about more. And I think the system in Canada is similar, very similar here. I hear the same thing here all the time. Did you ever feel after you had your own experience and you started to talk about and you started to use language around whether it's talking about narcissism or talking about domestic abuse, did you find that you were up against this wall of people saying, well, everyone's a narcissist. Everyone who has an asshole ex thinks that person's a narcissist. Everyone who had a bad experience now says their relationship was abusive. Did you ever find that? Not often, thankfully. Mm. Thankfully, I know this isn't everyone's experience. I encountered 99% absolute validation is what I'm trying to say. Mm. There have been a couple of times, I think, where someone was like, not everyone is a narcissist, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> I, I know. And I don't don't want to get known as that person that is hunting yeah. for that under every rock because that's not the case. The problem, I, I don't want to say the problem is, but like, <laughs> you can't unsee. Once you know what you know, you can't not notice it places and there are varying degrees of it. You can't confuse selfishness with narcissism. It's not the same thing. And that's what I try to tell people. We're all selfish. I'm selfish. Yeah. But narcissism is different. Sociopathy presents differently, you know, so I'm not looking for it under every rock. But if when you start to see patterns and you know what you know, you got to stick with your guns and not give a rip what other people say. <laughs> totally. Well, and the reason I asked is because I think I've heard a little bit of this, but What it makes me realize is I think that these instances are so much more common than we think. Mm -hmm. And I think because they sound extreme, people are like, well, everyone can't be going through that. And what does it say about society if it's true that one in four women will experience intimate partner violence in their life? 
Well, if that's the reality, I think we need to be prepared to face it because we're not going to be able to help people or to change that unless we acknowledge that it's a real thing. I think that's something that I've learned about myself too, is I could be very skeptical in the past and I could be somewhat judgmental and I would hear people talk about their own individual stories and I would think, well, it's not really that bad. But now having lived through it, I know that this stuff is happening under your nose in every community and maybe it is much more widespread than we think. And all the more reason to support people who have experienced it and not discredit them because... Mm -hmm of the damage that it does like intergenerationally systemically just thinking the damage can go so deep. Why risk? Even if, if someone is trying to express something and it's not that big of a deal and you don't think it is, what good is it going to do for you to, to invalidate what they're saying? The potential damage is not worth it because the truth is if someone doesn't feel safe, they're probably not. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your way of laying this out as well. I think you have a really, you've obviously dug really deep. You have a, a very balanced perspective on your reality, on your son's reality, who your ex is and his upbringing, just a holistic view of him. And it's clear that you had to have come a long way because I know it, it probably hasn't always felt like this. <laughs> yeah, and There's a lot of water under that bridge. I hope that the ripple effect or the feedback from sharing this episode is part of your healing. Yeah. As well. well. And thank you so much for talking about it and for holding this space for me to share it with you and to share our experiences. And thank you for saying that because I have done a lot of work and I am working really hard to try and recover and become a better person. But I think the reason that you're doing this from what I understand is just to try and help other people feel validated and to see themselves and get some comfort from that or some knowledge from that or some strength from that. And it is so, so, so valuable. I've taken strength from hearing other people talk about their experiences. And I hope if anybody takes any shred of strength or hope or insight from hearing about my experience, I hope that there's a benefit there. And also it's amazing when you find like-minded people that you can support and who can also support you. I think that's so yes. important to healing. Yeah. I tend to invalid, invalidate the impact of my own experiences. Cause I think, oh, well, someone out there had it worse or someone else, you know, it went deeper, did more damage or whatever, but we have no idea the impact who exactly needs to hear your specific experience with your personality, with your perspective and this point in time, not next year, not last year, but right now. I think one of my favorite quotes from this entire podcast project has come from my conversation with Kate. And that's when we were talking about bravery. And she said, it feels like crawling out of a burning house on your hands and knees. That has stuck with me ever since. She perfectly described the feeling I used to get when people would send me really kind messages and tell me how brave I was to get out or to tell my story, when honestly, both of those things just felt like a necessity to keep going, not a route I could choose to opt out of. I hope this conversation helps contribute to raising awareness of situations like Kate's and what needs to change everywhere. Thank you for being here, for subscribing, and for coming along with me as I learn the world of podcasting and this community takes shape. 
I have so many incredible stories coming next that honestly, I'm having a hard time waiting each week to share the next one with you. If you found value in these conversations and you haven't already left a review, it would mean the world if you took a quick moment to write one or just share this with a friend who would appreciate it. And if you found this episode to be impactful, post about it on Instagram and tag me at space and purpose. I would love to hear from you. 